to. Uh, Maybe your hope in life is uh, promotion in your career or uh, to kind of successfully bring up your children or to have the world's most wonderful grandchildren or uh, maybe you are thinking ahead to a holiday or to retirement or uh, a lie-in or uh, Sheffield United uh, staying up. What is your hope? What is your joy? What excites you? What energises you? What is it that, you know, when, when the conversation kind of turns around to this topic, suddenly you become animated? Or what's your boast? What's the thing you're really proud of, that you glory in? What's the crown in which you will boast when Jesus comes? That's kind of raised the stakes a bit, hasn't it? What is going to be your boast in the presence of Jesus? What's a good answer to that? The, the, the blood of Jesus, the, the grace of God, the gospel of God. We've just sung that about boasting in Jesus and his death and resurrection. All of those are great answers, biblical answers. But when Paul answers those questions in 1 Thessalonians, I think he has a bit of a surprise for us. I'm not sure it's what we would expect. And in fact, I, I, I think that if, if I had said it, you might have been a bit suspicious of me. Have a look at what he says at the end of chapter 2. Look at what he says in chapter 2, verse 19. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory, literally in which we will boast, in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. What is Paul's hope, his joy, his boast? It's you. It's the church in Thessalonica. For me, it's my gospel community. For you, it's Christ Church Forward. It's the people in the pew in front of you and behind you. Have a look round now. Look at those people. These people are your hope your joy, your crown. Some of you might want to change places. (laughs) It ups the stakes of church, doesn't it? If these people are your hope and your joy and your crown, well, you might decide you want to go to another church. Or, better still, that you will pour your lives into these people. These people in the room now, you will pour your lives into these people because they are your hope, your joy, your crown. They're your hope. This is what you should be looking forward to, seeing them in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes again. These people are your joy. These people should be what excites you and energises you. You know, life is full of its ups and downs, its knocks, its disappointments. It, you know, those days when uh, the boss is uh, unreasonable and a pain in the neck. And, and what keeps you going should be these people. The joy they bring as you see Christ in their lives and as they embody God's love to you and speak his grace into your, into your life. And these people are your boast, your glory. 
I don't mean that you go around saying our church is better than your church. What I mean is this, that with anyone who will listen, you say, let me tell you what God is doing in my church community. You you, you pick that up from Paul at the beginning of this letter. The whole of the first chapter is kind of full of him rejoicing in what God is doing in the lives of uh, these Christians. He begins by saying, we always thank God for all of you. It's full of his pride and joy. He describes them as a model for all the believers. He says in verse 8, Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. I I almost sort of feel there's a sort of tinge of disappointment in Paul there. uh, He's kind of looking forward to, to, to telling people all about the Thessalonians and what God has been doing in their lives and when he turns up somewhere new he finds the news has got there ahead of him and they already know. He says, oh, so looking forward to telling them about what God is doing in the Thessalonians' life and they already know. So you kind of, in chapter 1, you kind of sense Paul's excitement, his pride, his joy in these Christians. And then also we feel, I think, you can sense Paul's concern Uh, at the end of chapter 2 particularly. Look at chapter 2, verse 17. And as we read these verses, sense Paul's concern for these Christians. Verse 17, But brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time, in person, not in thought. Paul, just a background here, Paul was in Thessalonica for probably just three or four weeks. Uh, It was in just that time that the church was planted. And then he had to leave because of persecution. Imagine that situation. He, he arrives two or three, three or four weeks later. There's a little group of Christians. Persecution is sort of hit. He has to leave. And he's, you know, this, he's, he's torn up by this. And so he says, carrying on in verse 17, Out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again. But Satan stopped us. And then the bit I read earlier, what is our, joy, our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. He left them for just three or four weeks in the midst of persecution, and so he's, he's desperate to visit them again, to see how they're getting on, to strengthen their faith. But he can't. He's prevented. You can kind of feel the frustration that he feels. And then he said, I could... I, I, can't, I couldn't stand it any longer. Chapter 3, verse 1. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and God's fellow worker in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith, so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. You know quite well that we were destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted, and it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts might have been useless. Even though it means that Paul is left alone, uh, as he says there in verse 1, left alone in Athens, he sends Timothy to the Thessalonian church because he he needs to know what's happened. He can stand it no longer. And there's a sense as you read it that kind of the tension is ratcheted up. What has happened to this sort of little group of Christians left alone in the midst of persecution? 
And then we get verse 6. But but Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Here's the good news. The Thessalonians still have faith and love. They still have pleasant memories, which wasn't a foregone conclusion, of course, because, you know, Paul had turned up and, uh, and the next thing that happens is they're, they're facing persecution. You know, they, they might well have decided that Paul was just a troublemaker and he was best out of the way. But no, they have pleasant memories and they long to see him. And it's interesting, isn't it? Paul, Paul, Timothy has just now come and, you know, the first thing Paul does is write this letter. And so he says in verse 8, Therefore, brothers, this is how he responds to that news. In all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live, since you're standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Again, it's extraordinary language, isn't it? Now we really live. This is Paul's life, the Christian community. Now that he knows they're standing firm, he he lives and you feel his joy. He can't thank God enough for this community and he prays night and day earnestly for them. So so we we can see his pride and joy in this community. We can see his uh, concern, his longing for them. Now, what's going on uh, in all of this? I think the point is this, that for Paul, the Christian community is his identity. It's his hope, his joy, his boast, his life. Paul's sense of who he is is not just about him, or even about him and Jesus. He doesn't just find his identity in Jesus on his own. Paul sees himself as a member of God's people. His identity is communal. It's about belonging to the body of Christ so that what affects you affects me. And that community identity, communal identity, arises out of the gospel story. The gospel story is not the story uh, simply of God saving random individuals here and there. It is the story of God creating a people in his image. The Trinitarian God who is persons and community. It's the story of God choosing the family of Abraham and the nation of Israel, saving a people who will be his people. Jesus dies for his bride, the church. The refrain of the Bible that kind of keeps cropping up all the way through the story is, you will be my people and I will be your God. Obviously, God does save individuals. He saves us all as individuals, but he saves us when by faith we become part of the people for whom Christ died. In Romans 12, Paul says, In Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Again, feel the strength of that statement. Each member belongs to all the others. You belong to the person sitting next to you. We live in a culture that hesitates even to say that husbands and wives belong to one another. In a sort of radically individualistic culture where I expect to organise my life around me. I make decisions for myself by myself. It's my time and my money. 
and I don't want interference from other people. But Paul says we belong to one another. This is our identity. This is our home. Again, let me ask the question, what is your hope, your joy, your crown, your life? The more your answer is shaped by the gospel story, the more you will answer that question, as Paul did, by talking about the Christian community. What is my hope, my joy, my crown, my life? Your answer should be, in some way, talking about the Christian community. Our message is the good news that God is saving a people, creating a new community, a new humanity, a new love, a new family, new relationships. And that message shapes our mission. That's the first thing I want to highlight. Our message of new relationships shapes our mission. It shapes the way we do mission. We're not in the business of saving individuals alone. We are in the business of creating communities, of planting churches And we don't just kind of proclaim a message as if we sort of launch it off into the void. We live it. We share our lives. We give ourselves. We we do it through relationships. We embody the message of new relationships through relationships, through a shared life. And that's what we see here in Thessalonians. That's what we saw in the passage that we read together. Turn with me again to 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 7. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 7, Paul there. And, and just notice how, 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 I guess, relational all of this is. Paul's commitment to giving himself in, uh, in ministry, as he sort of describes his ministry among them, as a model for, for us. Verse 7, as apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you've become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. You can sense, can't you, Paul's emotional investment in these people. He's like a mother caring for her children. He's like a father encouraging, comforting, urging them to live lives worthy of God. There's no kind of professional detachment here. There's a deep commitment and belonging. Of course there is. There is his hope, his joy, his crown, his life. Paul invests his whole life in these people. Look at verse 9. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. Working night and day almost certainly means that that Paul made a living uh, making tents by day and then did his mission and ministry at night, in the evenings. 
which I think is quite striking. This chapter is often taken as a model for, for church leaders who are paid by the church to do ministry. This is where, you know, I've heard it preached many times in that kind of way. But, I, but it's strikingly, it's actually a model for, for all of us. It's a model for people who are doing a nine-to-five job. People like Paul. People who work night and day. The key verse, I think, is verse 8. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Everything else, in a sense, revolves around this principle. Paul's ministry, this ministry that he now commends to the Thessalonians, involves sharing the gospel and sharing his life. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Now sometimes Christians separate those two things. Some people share the gospel without sharing their lives. Other people share their lives without, sharing, uh, without a concern for uh, other people's uh, needs. Some people do evangelism without sharing their lives, without having a concern for people's needs. Other people do social action but never proclaim the gospel. The model that Paul sets out here involves both. We must proclaim the gospel. People are not saved by our good works. They're not saved by us. And in fact, if that's all you do, if all you do is good works among people, then they will assume you are doing those good works so that you can earn uh, your way way back to God. That's the message they will pick up. And that is the opposite of our message, of the gospel of grace, which is about what God has done for us in Christ. So the word of God must be central to our mission. Paul says in verse 13, the bit that I read as we prayed, that our message is not the word of men. It's not my opinion versus your opinion. We're not just sort of trading opinions here. This is the word of God. God himself has sent a message of hope and salvation And we must proclaim that. But we must also share our lives with people. We must also share our lives with people. That's how I love my children. Uh, I'm sure it's how you love your children. What I want for them above anything else is that they put their faith in Christ. Of course I do. That is their greatest need. To be reconciled with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so to escape his judgment. And so I take every opportunity to share the gospel with them. But that's not all I do. I don't just kind of preach at them all the time. I share my life with them. I I care for their physical needs and their emotional needs. And it's the same with the people we want to reach. We need to proclaim the gospel, but we need to share our lives with them. In fact, Paul talks, as we've seen, about being like a mother and like a father to the Thessalonians. The Quran purports to be a message dictated by an angel. But God didn't do that. God kind of didn't drop the Bible out of heaven, sort of landing, boom. God sent people. He sent prophets and apostles. And ultimately, he sent his son. He came in person. And that's what we do in mission. I don't know entirely what your mission committee does, but 
I suspect it doesn't sort of get together of an evening and shove bits of the Bible into envelopes and post them off to random addresses around the world. We send people to carry the message, to live the message, to explain the message, to embody the message. This is what your Mission Sunday is all about. Sending people or supporting people who are already there working. This is what missionaries do. They go. They go themselves. They offer themselves, give of themselves, often at great cost. It is word and life together, sharing the gospel of God and our lives as well. And so I wonder if today God is calling you to go, to share your life with people across the world who need to hear the message of Jesus. Or to give your life, to support others who are going, giving your money, praying for them, writing to them, supporting them. Uh, But here's the rub. This is what we are all called to here and now. We are all missionaries. Maybe you are called, being called, to go to the ends of the earth, but we are all called to be missionaries here in Sheffield and therefore to share the gospel of God and to share our lives. Uh, Maybe this will help you think about how you can begin to, to share your lives with people. Think about all the activities that, uh, however mundane, that make up your routine. Think, about your, think first of all about your daily routine. Like, things like travelling to work, walking the dog, eating meals, doing chores. Uh, you might want to kind of do this exercise this, this afternoon or something. So All the things you do every day. And then all the things you routinely do every week. Like grocery shopping or watching your favourite TV programme or going to the cinema or the gym. And then think of all the things that you do every month. Gardening, getting a haircut, watching, going, uh, yeah, that kind of thing. And then you should, you should have quite a long list by the time you've done all of that. And then for each thing on that list, think about, could I include an, a believer in doing that? You know, if I'm going to invest in these people, if I'm going to share my life with these people, if these people are my hope, my joy, my crown, how could I involve them so that we're sharing our lives together? And how could I involve uh, an unbeliever in doing this with me? So how can I believe unbeliever? And then thirdly, how could I share the gospel? How could I speak God's good news in this situation? Could I say something that will encourage my Christian friend? Is there some way of beginning to talk about Jesus with my unbelieving friend? It's about sharing life. See, see none, of those things, it's, it's, none of those things are about adding something to your schedule. It's about doing what you do, but sharing it with others and looking for opportunities to share the message. One of the things that people in my gospel community do is uh, watch X Factor together. Uh, so, you know, on a, when it's on, on a, sun, a Saturday evening, everyone comes around, shares a bit of food and watches it, talks, talks, talks all the way through it, and, uh, but, but looking for opportunities to encourage and to share the gospel. Now, you all watch X Factor. I know, I know you all pretend not to, but I know you see secretly you all do. So there's a great opportunity to share your life with people 
and to create the basis, the, the context in which you can share the gospel. Our message of new relationships shapes our mission. We do mission through relationships. We share our lives with people. We are concerned for them and we love them. And so we uh, share life with them. And then secondly, much more briefly, our message of the cross also shapes our mission. Our message of new relationships shapes our mission. Our message of the cross shapes our mission. Of course, our message is not simply that God is creating a people. Our message is that God is creating a people through the cross. It is the cross that reconciles us to God and to one another. We are saved through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ because he dies on our behalf. We don't create community through our effort. These new relationships and this new love is given to us through the cross. And that message too shapes our mission. Uh, uh, The cross is not only our salvation, it is also our model We are called to follow the way of the cross, to show the same sacrificial love and willingness to suffer that we see in the cross. Now the cross, interestingly, isn't mentioned in 1 Thessalonians. But its fingerprints are all over the letter. And above all, I don't know if you picked this up as we were in in the little passages that we've read at different points, that that there's, there's a lot of talk about persecution and suffering all the way through the letter. Uh, Paul is describing their persecution or warning them to expect it. Let let, let me give you just one example. Chapter 3, verse 4. When we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted and it turned out that way, as you well know. If we are called uh, to follow the way of the cross, the, the cross that saves us shapes our lives and that means persecution and suffering. And so for a few of us, uh, that's what it may mean, persecution, maybe even martyrdom. But for all of us, it means giving our lives for Christ, just as Christ gave his life for us. And this, in our, you know, we, in, uh, in the UK, we, we do not face acute suffering. Uh, scorn, maybe, the, the culture as a whole is hostile to Christianity, and increasingly so, Uh, but uh, still uh, gladly, uh, thankfully, not outright persecution. But we are still called to the way of the cross. The cross still shapes our lives. We are still called to give our lives for Christ just as he gave his life for us. And so for all of us, that means sharing our lives with others because we love them so much. Sharing our lives with people around the world. Again, it may be that this weekend, this today, God is calling you to share your life, to go, to take the message in person around the world. But we are called to, here in Sheffield, to share our lives with others. We loved you so much, says Paul, that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. And when sharing your life seems too much, when you'd rather be sat on the sofa watching telly, lift your eyes to the cross and see the blood of Jesus poured out for you. See how much he loved you. And live by faith 
in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The writer of Hebrews says that uh, it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross. His joy, his crown, his hope was that he would have a people who would be his people and for that he endured the cross. What will you endure for your hope, your joy, your boast? Lost people brought into God's family.